It's good to be with you, church. If you're new to visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor. And before we get into our text, we'll get there in just a second, I wanted to say it feels like every couple of weeks, every couple of weeks is not new in history, but it feels like every couple of weeks, there's something that we could preach about about what's going on in the life of our country. It feels like every couple of weeks, and it's not new, but this has been happening. It feels like there's always something to talk about, and I, I gotta tell you, it's difficult to determine what should be preached from the pulpit and what should be addressed in another area of communication and what we should just be silent about. Because God has called us as a people to engage the world, and yet, we as a people, when we gather together, we are not led by current events, we are led by God's word. And what we do as a church is every week we gather together and we trust if we teach and go through the Bible verse by verse, God's gonna give us everything we need for life and godliness. But as circumstances would have it today, we're in between books right now. And it gave me some flexibility because like next week we're starting Matthew and I cannot wait to go through that together and see Jesus afresh with you. But the flexibility I had this week, I was planning on preaching again through 1 Corinthians 1, and in the last couple of weeks, I just saw things that I just, just couldn't ignore. So let me just say this again before we get into the sermon. I am so thankful that our government ended the separation of families at the border this week. I'm so thankful that they did that. Now listen, immigration is an incredibly complicated topic, And there is much more to do and a long way to go, but separating children from their parents can never be justified any form, any fashion. If we're gonna be a church who seeks to protect children who are in the womb, we have to be a church who also wants to protect children at the border. To truly honor the image of God on every human being means to be pro-life from womb to tomb. But this week, as we saw this practice coming to light, the news, there was this really fascinating back and forth between the attorney general and the larger culture about the topic of Romans 13. And as someone who teaches the Bible for a living, I'm all ears when I begin to hear other people in our culture attempt to teach the Bible. And so this was an extremely rare case where you have the attorney general, news anchors, late night TV hosts, journalists, all commenting and attempting to teach Romans 13. And all of them quoted Romans 13 correctly, and all of them taught it wrongly. So I thought, I'll throw my hat in the ring, let's talk about it, right? Let's teach what Romans 13 says, because some people used it as a justification for the government to do whatever they did necessary, and no one could ever object, while the other side was trying to undermine that teaching by quoting a verse in Romans 13.10, and using it out of context, it wasn't used correctly at all to undermine the other teaching because they don't wanna follow laws, they don't, they don't perceive as loving. And this whole thing, the last couple of weeks, is right in line with America's complicated history with the Bible. Our country has a very complicated history with the Bible. The Bible has been used as the grounds and justification for some of the most incredible movements in our country and the Bible has been used for some of the most awful things that have happened in our country. And oftentimes in our history, two opposing sides will look at the exact same biblical text and draw from it the exact opposite conclusions to justify their meanings and their agendas. And in particular, this has happened before in Romans 13. The Atlantic 
had a fascinating article this week talking about and doing kind of a deep dive on how Romans 13 in particular has been used historically in our country. Since the founding of America, people have been using Romans 13 to justify obeying authorities and not siding with the revolution and to justify usurping authorities they saw as unjust. This is not a new issue. But as I I saw people discussing it, it became very clear to me that very few had a deep understanding of what Paul is actually saying in the text. And the reason for this is very few of the people speaking about it are actually interested in what God is actually saying. Why? They're using it for their own agendas. They're using scripture for their own agenda. And I'm not shocked by this. It's to be expected. I'm not shocked when people who are, are in the world use the scripture to justify whatever cause or agenda they want to get done, but what does concern me, what does concern me is when those who have trusted in Christ blindly accept weak and insufficient teaching of God's word because probably if we realize we're actually more concerned with the political agenda than thoughtfully considering and understanding God's word and faithfully obeying God's word. So I want us to look at Romans 13 and go, what does this text mean? What does God have for you? What does God have for me? What is being said and what is not being said? Now, kind of as a precursor to get our hearts ready to look at this text, let's look at this text primarily out of love for God and not as an opportunity to show someone else how wrong they are. We as a church do not come to the word of God for ammunition to destroy other people. That's not why we go to the word of God. We go to the word of God to hear from him. We go to the word of God to love him. We go to the word of God to follow him and to trust him and hopefully be able to help other people see this God for themselves. To understand what God is saying, you have to come to his word with humility and teachability, knowing That the person who needs God's instruction most and the person who needs God's mercy most is not someone out there, it's me. I need it most. If you come to the Bible trying to destroy someone else, you won't understand it. You come to God's word humble, saying, God, I need it the most. Listen to what the prophet says to us when we come to God's word. This is all just precursor, getting us ready. Isaiah 66, one, listen to what God says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He's saying, nothing you have to offer me is impressive. Your status, your wealth, your power, your platform, your intellect, your eloquence, your wit, not impressed, God says. What does he say? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. You don't come to the Bible for them. You come to the Bible for you, for you to listen, for you to receive. It was a good exercise for me this week. I went to Romans 13. What was my Genesis statement? To show how wrong they were. 
God used it to do what he always does with his word, to reveal his wisdom and his love and his power, and to reveal my own sins of fear and anxiety and pride and worldliness. So let's come to the word as a church with humility. Say, God, teach me. What do you have for me? So Romans 13. Let's read Romans 13, one through seven together to see what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. This is the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now to cover everything in this text exhaustively would take much more than one sermon, and we start Matthew next week, so I got one sermon, okay? But let me say at the outset, at the outset, what is Paul saying and what is he not saying? Okay, let me give you an overview. Here's what he's saying. Here's the purpose of this text. He wants to explain to them the origin of government, wants to explain to them the ideal role government plays in God accomplishing his purposes in the world, and third, what our general posture should be towards them. The origin, ideal role, and our posture towards them. That's what, that's what he's trying to accomplish. Paul is not trying to answer every possible question we could ever have about the government and its role in our life and how we respond to it. Nor is he suggesting that governing authorities are infallible and that they should be followed blindly no matter what. That's what he's saying and not saying. So let's look clearly first, what is he saying? Let's go through a couple of verses to see this for ourselves. Here's the first thing he says. The posture of Christians towards the government should generally be characterized as one of submission and respect. That's what he's saying. Now, why does he say that? He ties it to, he says, when you respect and submit to governing authorities, that is an expression of your submission and respect towards God who is sovereign over those authorities and set them up in the first place. Look at verse one, you can see it for yourself. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Be submissive to. Now, why, Paul? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. He's making it very plain that every government has valid authority over us. We should not view the gov government as an evil entity or even a neutral institution that we can disregard whenever we'd like. But we should perceive of ourselves 
as being those who are under the valid authority of the government. Why? Because the origin of every government is not simply the circumstances of that part of the world. Listen, the, the, the amount of factors that go into a nation being born and a government being established is immense. And yet Paul is saying, though there's all sorts of means and circumstances God uses, he's locating the ultimate source of these governing authorities and the ultimate authority of God himself. They exist under his control. And what does it even say? They're even instituted by God himself. He has ordained that government should be set up over people, even his own people who are scattered all over the globe. That's the first thing, that's our posture towards government. Second thing, the government is designed to exercise its authority in, in punishing what is evil and promoting what is good. Okay, read verses one through five together. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Then he says, okay, thesis statement, that's what's going on. Verse two, therefore, in light of this, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, listen, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul's making it very clear that governments are one of the means, one of the servants of God that he uses to execute his judgments in the world. He uses governments to execute his mysterious counsel and judgments in the world. His judgments to restrain evil, to restrain oppression, and also to protect and promote the flourishing of humanity. Did you notice in this, that text how often God's judgment and God's wrath is directly associated with the government exercising its authority in the world. He says you should, you should submit not only to, get, to not be punished, but also for the sake of your own conscience, knowing you have been obedient to God's word about the governing authorities. Here's what he's trying to communicate. These verses, they show the tremendous amount of potential good any particular government can accomplish in the world. That's what he's trying to show. Here's the last thing that we see in this text. Lastly, one of the practical ways we are subject to authorities is by paying taxes and being respectful. Verse six, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He's saying, since God established government for his own purposes in the world, we serve them by paying the taxes they place on us. That's how you serve them. Minister just means they're accomplishing things on God's behalf. That's what they're doing. He says, not only do we give to them financially, but we even give to them what can be more difficult for us, honor and respect. We are humble and kind towards those who tax us. That's what he's saying. And all of this 
is not obedience primarily to the government. This is obedience to God. To do all these things that he just said is not obedience to them first and foremost, it's obedience to God. So you read this text, and I'm sure if you're like me, you begin to think and have all these questions. You're like, okay, but how does that relate to this government that I'm thinking of that's awful, or this one historically that's awful? You begin to think about all the situations that clearly this is not the case. If you have, I mean, if you have any knowledge of human history, this text can feel and seem incredibly naive and potentially very harmful. I mean, human beings have been harming and abusing and killing one another since sin entered the world. And what governments do, they simply allow those same murderous and sinful desires of humans to be expressed on a much larger scale to affect even more people in even longer and lasting ways. I mean, you can think of government after government that's not been anywhere close to this text. It says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, really? Paul, if you had been in Third Reich Germany with Hitler, would you have said the same thing? Would you have said the same thing with Soviet gulags in Russia? Would you have said the same thing in the Jim Crow American South? You can name government after government of saying, how does this fit with that? Is Paul really saying what I think that he's saying? Now, before you think Paul is simply a naive loyalist who doesn't have any understanding that a government could do evil things, this is the same person he's about to be executed by the Roman government in a couple of years after he writes this letter. He's not naive. He knows what human beings are capable of. Because I want you to notice two things in particular to help give us some nuance to this text. Notice first where he grounds the authority of governments. And remember, this text is not in a vacuum. This text is in the corpus of scripture. There's a lot more things that God has said about our interaction with governing authorities. So the first thing, remember where the text began, verse one. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, it's a clear, clear command. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. He's saying the authority of every government is derived from and secondary to God's authority. As much authority as Paul is attributing to the state, he is also at the very same time undermining their authority and saying, but you're still subservient to God. He's saying no matter what any Caesar or czar or prime minister or president may claim, God is the supreme authority and all leaders are under him. And when those two authorities are directly at odds, Christians submit to the highest authority. That's what he's saying. And secondly, this text itself fits within a larger narrative of civil disobedience towards governing authorities found throughout the Bible. What you see, if you read the Bible cover to cover, God's commands can very easily put us at odds with those who are over us, with those of authority over us. See, Christians should be some of the most submissive and respectful citizens a country could ever ask for. We really should be. We should be the strange group of people who serve when no one else wants to who are respectful when someone doesn't deserve it. 
And at the same time, we should be the strange people who can sometimes be the most obstinate. Because our greatest allegiance and our greatest collective identity is not tied to any nation, state, or land. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our greatest identity is with God and his Christ and his kingdom. And allegiance to God will sometimes necessarily mean civil disobedience against the authorities over us. Disobedience even to the extent where we suffer because we obey God over everyone else. Anytime the state attempts to force the church to choose between being faithful to the word of God or to be faithful towards their word, we join the long line of saints before us who chose suffering with God rather than the ease with worldly powers. That's what we do. Because the Bible has example after example after example of men and women living out their faith and what it necessarily meant in their time was resisting and disobeying the authorities over them. I'm gonna give you four very quick texts because I want you to see, I'm not creating this, this is the word of God. Don't turn there, it'll be very quick. Exodus 1, 15 through 17 says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. Fearing God meant disobeying a direct order from the authority over them. Daniel 6, 9 says, therefore, King Darius, Israel is in exile in Babylon. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. He signed a document that says, you may not pray to the Israel God. You may not pray to Yahweh. That's what he said. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, put into law, he went to his house where he had his windows and his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Esther 4, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. In Acts 5, the apostles these are the, their governing authorities, the religious leaders over them speaking to them. He says, saying, these are leaders, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Those are just four. And you see them doing it disobeying because of being faithfulness to God. And on top of all of these, do you know why 
You know one of the main causes why the Roman government eventually was persecuting the early, these early Christians? Because the statement that they, you read in the Bible, Jesus is Lord, for that first century church was not simply a theological statement, though it clearly was. It was also a political statement they were making as well. Because in the Roman world, the Roman government, to be Roman meant to adhere to everything Rome said and to agree and say with your mouth and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord is in direct contradiction to that. And so Christians would say, hey, we can follow all sorts of rules and laws and we can submit and be respectful even to people we don't respect, but we cannot join you Romans in your supreme allegiance and identity with the state and Caesar as Lord over all. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. There is no other king that compares to him. He is our Lord, and we have no other. So Christians submit to authorities over them, and we submit to the highest authority over every nation, every state, every leader. That authority is a king named Jesus. So which is it? Which is it? Do we submit or do we disobey? Yes. Yes. It depends on the situation. Now, let me say this. We're going to get a little more practical. Let me say this. We need to be extremely thoughtful about these things. Extremely thoughtful. And I say that not because you aren't thinking people, but because as a culture right now, thoughtfulness is not something we value very highly. Like in our culture right now, the things, we value it, but it's not top of the list. What we value most, what we hear and go, that's right, that's what I'm talking about. The things that just get us going is passion, visceral responses, authenticity. Those are our highest values. And thoughtfulness often takes a back seat to those values because thoughtfulness will require us to be slow to speak sometimes. And that's not valued right now. Because you have to be thoughtful because listen, not every cause and not every subversive movement against the government is equally as valid and righteous. And on top of that, not every kind-hearted and submissive posture towards the government is actually godly. Sometimes, There's rebellion against the government that's just disobedience to God. And sometimes there's submission towards the government that's disobedience to God. So how do we determine when to do what? There are a lot of things that have been written and said about how to think through this. Plenty of theologians have developed some really helpful grids to determine the degrees to which we resist and submit based on all sorts of helpful criteria. If you want more information about that, just let me know. I can send this to you this week. But let me give you three things we should do to grow in wisdom and discernment of how do we follow Jesus in relation to the government? How do we do both? Let me give you three things to grow in knowledge of. Grow in knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of the issues, and knowledge of yourself. The Bible, the issues, yourself. Wisdom is more than knowledge, but it's not less than knowledge. And oftentimes the way that God gives us wisdom is through Learning, so first thing, knowledge of the Bible. This is super obvious, but the last couple weeks have taught me we don't know it as well as we think. It's so often neglected. 
Because God's word is gonna show you there are certain things that are clearly morally good and bad. And his grid, listen, is going to challenge every party you affiliate with. Jesus is gonna offend everybody at some point in time. But when you read the Bible, what will become clear is, okay, what is right and wrong? What do we have to stand for? And where are there more gray areas? Listen, there are a lot of things that God has been quiet about in his word. Now, just because God hasn't spoken to it directly doesn't mean you can't speak out or act in a certain way. I remember hearing an old pastor say it this way. He said, if God ha- where God has shut his holy mouth, I should be slow to open mine. If God hasn't spoken to whatever it is you're passionate about directly, have a little more caution about it. Have a little more thoughtfulness about it. Because God hasn't been clear about that particular thing, and so we need to be more open-handed about those realities. But you won't know what is clear, what is not clear, unless you're in the Bible and saturating yourself with it. So first, know your Bible. Second, know the issues. Now, this is really difficult to do because the amount of information you have to sort through is so much. And oftentimes, honestly, we can go to the Bible and not learn about the issues, because at least the Bible was the living word of God, at least it's static, at least we're not adding to it, because to know about an issue, I mean, every day there's more news, and there's more edits, and more additions to every situation and every story, but this is where Christians can actually become quite unhelpful to a society if we don't actually learn what's going on. Do not buy into this hyper-spirituality to think, all you need to know is the Bible, and that will help everything. You're gonna have to learn things about this world in order to be faithful in it. God's called you to be a part, to be in the world. So to be faithful to him requires knowledge of it. So let me give you a couple of practical things. Learn from multiple sides. Listen, if there's anything we learn about our country, we are on polar opposite ends. Listen to the smartest person on the other side and be able to restate their argument in a way that they would agree with. Right, don't create straw men. Learn from other people. And if, if you're not able to read up on an issue, ask people around you. Ask leaders in this church. We, we want to help you think through these things. And if you don't know anything about an issue, you should be more quiet about that issue. If you haven't read the article, don't repost it. <laughs> Reading the headline does not count either, right? Don't repost it. Or maybe don't repost it because Maybe 10% of it is good and you want that one paragraph to be read, but 90% of it is really messed up. Maybe don't repost that one either. Be thoughtful about that. Know the issues, know what's going on. Learn some history. Like, study church history. We're not, listen, we're not in some unique season the church has never faced. This has happened before, much worse things have happened before. So be mindful this is not new. Men and women have been faithful before us. Like, can I just give to you one area of history to study in particular? Read about the Civil Rights Movement. We're so blessed to have this very recent historic example from black Christians who have gone before us who have really wrestled with how, how, do you, how do you be respectful and disobey at the same time? No, no people's gonna do it perfect, but learn from other people, because we won't do it perfect either. But we have to navigate because we have to do both. Know your Bible, know the issues, know yourself. Know which way you lean on this. 
Some of you are gonna lean towards submission and respect and never even consider maybe me and my party or me and my government could have some disconnect. Maybe I should speak against them or stand against them on this particular topic. And know yourself if you lean the other way. If you lean the way of like, you're very hyper aware of the fallibility and the idolatry of our government, but for you to be respectful to authorities is a struggle for you to be mindful that they are over you, to pray for those over you, no matter if you voted for them or not. You're commanded to do that. Know which way you lean. Know if it's hard for you to have any disagreement and also know if you're a type who who confuses and thinks your speeding ticket is the same as the march to Selma. They're not the same. They're not the same. It's really important you and I understand that not every injustice is on equal levels with everything else. It requires thoughtfulness because we have to do both, church. We have to do both because this is the tension you and I live in if we're gonna follow Jesus with any and every government. You wanna know why? Because Jesus himself created this tension. He created the tension, the one where we respectfully submit in ways we, we may not want to and we lovingly defy in ways that may cost us because the religious leaders came to Jesus and they pressed him about his politics. They pressed him and they said, all right, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes to the oppressive government who doesn't believe in anything we believe, who uses our funds for all sorts of awful things, should we pay taxes to them? Let's read Mark 12, 14 to 17, and we'll see Jesus' answer, and we'll be done. Mark 12, 14 says, they come to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he, Jesus, said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which is about one day's wages, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness An inscription is this. They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Like only Jesus can, he shows this new way of his kingdom. He's showing them, listen, I'm creating a people who in one sense is a part of every tribe, nation, tongue on the planet, and in another sense is distinct from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet. So he says, yeah, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This government had oppressed the Jews. This government had done awful things in the name of Caesar. Jesus knew this, and he's saying, if that's his, then you give it back. You submit to him in those ways. Can you see, as you're reading Jesus' words in Mark 12, can you see Romans 13 is simply Paul attempting and applying what Jesus already said? Paul's saying pay taxes to who you owe taxes and to honor to whom honor is due. He's just saying and restating what Jesus already said. So we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then what does Jesus say? You give to God what is God's. You give to God what bears his likeness? What bears, another way to say it, his image? What's he saying? Caesar can have his coins. You give yourself to God. You give all of you are back to him. 
Because God wants you to worship and trust him above all. So sometimes, church, trusting him will be trusting him to protect you as you submit to a policy and a leader you do not respect. And other times, trusting him will be as you stand for his kingdom and the image of God and you suffer for it. Every time we we are scared of obeying God in either way, every time you're scared of the possibility of submitting or defying terrifies us, we have Jesus out in front showing us and proving to us God can be trusted in anything and everything. Because where, where do you see Jesus at his most glorious and most spectacular and most awe-inspiring and his greatest act for us? Where do you see it? At the cross. The cross is the pinnacle of his work and power. And at the cross, what do you see him doing there? He is simultaneously submitting to and resisting the governing authorities over him. The cross Jesus was nailed to was not a general cross. It wasn't a non-specific cross. They just found in the woods somewhere and gave it and used it for Jesus. It was a Roman cross. It was a government-sanctioned cross. Because at the end of the day, God was the one orchestrating. He was dying for our sins, but it was the authorities crucified him. Why? Because when those in power rightly perceive who Jesus is, do you know what they see? A threat. Because Jesus bows to nobody. He's a king. He came to give his life for his people. But he did not come to follow your word or your authority. He came to say, come die with me. He's a king. And so when Jesus calls you to take up your cross, maybe that cross will be submitting in ways you don't want to. Maybe that cross will be given to you by the culture and government in ways you didn't want to, but you had to stand for what he said. When he says, take up your cross, he's saying, follow me upstream. Follow me to places that in your heart are going to terrify you. Follow me to places maybe you don't want to go because you know, though, the kingdom of God is better than every other kingdom here. The name he's given me is better than any name I could receive here. And that's where we as the church should be the best citizens any country could ever wish for because we'll serve when no one else wants to. And we'll stand up for what's right when no one else wants to. That should be who we are. Because no matter the cross Jesus gives to you to follow after him, we're estranged people who can act in these ways that don't fit with any party because we have a hope no one else has. We have a home no one else has. We have a kingdom no one else has. This is not our home and what I fear is that maybe in tumultuous times, God's revealing in us, maybe you've made this place too much of your home. Maybe you put down roots a little bit too deep here and Jesus is using this time to say, church, wake up. This ain't home. This ain't not how it ends for you. Even if you die, I have a kingdom I'm bringing in. Now it's only in part, but one day it will be in full, church. And on that day when his kingdom comes, you're gonna see his reign, his rule, his government outlasts and outshines every other one. 
You're gonna see that cross you bore was just a means to an end of you being exalted with him. That's why we can give away like nobody else. That's why we can serve like nobody else because we have a kingdom like nobody else. That's why we follow him. We should be this strange group of people. It doesn't fit in any necessarily category because we have a hope no one else has. We have this glorious role, church, of being in this city, the capital of Texas, and showing them that's what the kingdom of God is like. You know how you point to the kingdom of God? You obey his word no matter what it says. Whatever he says, we'll do. Knowing home's gonna be here soon. And on that day, when the king is ushered in in all of his glory, when every knee bows and every ruler and every leader submits to him knowing clearly he is God, he will set things right in ways that bring healing and hope for the nations. Let's pray together. Father, make us a people who no matter what you say or call us to, we stand for your name, not ours. For your kingdom, not ours. For your glory, not ours. Knowing that Jesus, you are like no other king or leader or cause because you know what it's like to be us. You're the one who gave your life for us. No one else has done that, so you have an authority no one else could ever possess. God, the amount of wisdom and love and resolve and patience and long-suffering, God, we're gonna need in this season to wade into what faithfulness looks like and all the complications that surround it. Holy Spirit, we need you desperately. Jesus, help us see that even those of us in this room who think we're too broken to ever be used by you to point to anything other than our own weakness, God, lift our eyes to see we're not sort of sons and daughters. We are your kids fully. And you've called us into your kingdom work. And you've called us to tell the world that there is a better kingdom and a better government and a better king. Jesus, there is nobody like you. No one is wise. No one is kind. No one is strong. None is loving, none is patient, none is merciful. So Jesus, we want to again, because you first loved us, pledge our allegiance to you. You are Lord, and there is no other. You are king, and there is no other. And we as a people follow you, whatever you say. Because you alone have the words of life. So God, we look to you. Let us see the world and ourselves the way you see them.